This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Andrew Alexander, a former Washington Post ombudsman, a former Washington bureau chief for Cox Newspapers, and an award-winning veteran journalist with more than four decades of experience. During his career, Andy reported from more than 50 countries, and he also directed major news coverage both domestically and internationally. He also serves on the New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists. This group assists journalists who have been subjected to attacks, arrests, and harassments worldwide. Today, Andy discusses how the media covered the recent federal government shutdown and media coverage of Donald Trump's first year as president. We've just gone through a a government shutdown, albeit only three days. Uh, People have been critical of almost everybody in this process, but Let's look at the media. How did the media fare, in in your view, in in covering this shutdown? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good question. Um, I think on this one, not bad. But but let me explain. Uh, I think since the Reagan years, uh, even before that, I, we've had a number of shutdowns. Uh, the, the shutdowns are now unfortunately becoming somewhat common. I think since 1976, we've had something like. 19 or 20, eight of them were actually resulted in furloughs. A, a key thing that drives the coverage, I think, is uh, two things. One is the duration, uh, how much it starts to impact actual people, citizens, and then the politics, all right? In this case, it was somewhat unique. It, uh, it started to be implemented over a weekend, so the effects were not that great. And the backdrop to that is that you also have a president that is uh, different than most uh, presidents we've had. So the coverage then becomes very much about the politics of it. And that's – I don't necessarily fault that coverage uh, of, of this duration, of this shutdown. It was a political story. There's a lot of intrigue. Now, had it lasted longer – I'm sure I would have been critical of the coverage because I've been critical of it in the past when there have been shutdowns that involve furloughs and of some duration. It seems, though, from an observer's point of view, that this is analogous sometimes of covering a sporting event, Mm -hmm. uh, that I I saw more uh, news outlets, albeit broadcast or print, 
cover this like they were covering uh, a football game mm-hmm. or or, or uh, some other sporting event where you have strategies, you have winners, you have losers, you you have the ongoing uh, uh, commentary is who was talking to whom and, and for how long. Uh, am I wrong with that? No, you're absolutely right. Uh, again, I think some of that's natural because we're – we're in a year when we have midterms. A lot is at stake. Uh, the Senate and the House potentially could flip and all that. Uh, but, Tom, you're also getting into where where I do have a problem with coverage even short term. We ended up with countdown clocks with, with um, uh, after the settlement was reached of winners and losers. I was sort of struck in the coverage that in nowhere did I see losers being people in the public, the, the actual <laughs> right. people who are being served. Now that's, uh, again, this was a short shutdown. And uh, we entered the, the work week and really it was a phase shutdown so the, there were not huge impacts on the economy. But I'll just give you one small anecdote that sure. I, I think um, is a reminder in a very small way that the end losers are the public. Uh, my wife and I have a place out in the Shenandoah outside of Washington. Uh, on Saturday, there was an event where a local artist who had gotten a grant from the Shenandoah National Trust to go up in the Shenandoah Mountains for a couple weeks in the fall and, and paint, um, they had a reception to show his work, and he was donating one of his better works to the Shenandoah National Trust, which supports the, uh, the, the park. And also, uh, and they could sell it, they could make money, it helps mm-hmm. them. And, uh, and 20% of anything else he sold went to the Shenandoah National Park. Okay, so they wanted to have a ceremony. They wanted the superintendent of the park to be there, and they wanted his staff to be there. At the last minute, they got word that the superintendent said, I'm not able to come because it's been ruled that I am officially furloughed and my staff can't come either. So now it turned out the superintendent didn't show up. The staff showed up, but without their uniforms on. Okay, so you're thinking that's a really pretty small thing. But that's one of the little, little small end-user things that angers citizens. And you multiply that thousands And you multiply it out. So if you play it back, um, I think the last consequential uh, shutdown we had was 2013. This was over funding of Obamacare. Right. Uh, Republicans, I think, were seen as overplaying their hand there. Ted Cruz paid a price for that. Uh, I happened to be in Columbus at that time, and we were starting to get into it. Uh, and I was waiting to catch a plane back to Washington, D.C., and there was a group of business people there that were somehow connected with agriculture, and they had a meeting at the agriculture department. And just as our plane was about to to board, the guy got a phone call, the leader of the group got a phone call telling him that the agriculture people he wanted to meet with could not meet with him because they were furloughed and uh, officially they cannot be doing business. And he turned to his group and he said, we're out $15,000, meaning we have non-refundable flights, we have hotels, we may not be able to. That's where the end user coverage, I think, starts to to be important. People suffer in this. And if you say, well, they're, maybe they're not suffering financially, if you go back to the Shenandoah National Trust thing, they're suffering psychically. They are, they yeah. are frustrated with their government. 
because it does have consequences. But but I haven't seen any of that coverage. No. I mean, we, we saw some of what this will mean. The military will still be on duty. You'll still get your mail. I mean, we get, had some of that. Yeah. But but really not to the end. We did. Music. We did not. And again, I think if it went longer, you might have started to see it. But I wonder if you would have. And, and here this plays into a larger question on media. Um, we – Media, in my opinion, have not uh, – national media have not learned the lesson yet of the Trump election, which is something was happening in the interior of the country that we were not sufficiently attuned to. And so when we overfixate on the sort of the, uh, the game in, of politics being played in Washington, which is important. I'm not diminishing that. But when we do it to the exclusion – of what's actually happening out in the country, then I think we are not doing our jobs as journalists. Uh, I really want to know right now what people are thinking about this. And I, I think it will pro- – the story, I would guess, is it adds to the perception of Congress as being dysfunctional. These people can run their lives in Athens, Ohio, and other places. Why can't they – in Washington. But does it also add to the feeling that the media is not trustworthy? I mean, we just had a recent survey by the, the Knight Foundation that came out and, and put media right down there with, with Congress, mm-hmm. if not lower uh, than Congress. Did that help media's image at all? I think probably not. Um, it's hard to say if, if it damaged it because uh, this was not a case of, um, uh, of inaccurate reporting or something like that. I, I think uh, – let's be honest. There, Congress and the media are right down there in the gutter. Uh, I mean it's both pretty bad. Now, just mitigating that slightly, and I think the Pew survey showed this, other surveys had, very much like in Congress, the rating is very low, but when you say to people – and what do you think of your member of Congress? <laughs> they basically, in most cases, say, well, pretty good. That actually, uh, there is a corollary to that in the media questioning. When you ask people, what do you think of the media generally? They think, have a low opinion. But what do you say, what do you say is your trust level or your favorability rating of the media outlet that you turn to much to consume news? It tends to go up. Now, that's a complicated question because very often they are – in this era, they are going to media that ideologically supports their worldview. Uh, so that's a different issue. A couple of specific questions because you you were bureau chief and you covered a lot of these or had your staff cover a lot of them. I think even back to the 1996 one mm-hmm. with uh, uh, Newt Gingrich and, and Bill Clinton, the famous one at, at that point. I saw a headline this morning that said media outlets struggle to assign blame for shutdown. And then the subtext was both Republicans and Democrats claim the coverage is skewed against them. Is that the media's role to assign blame for the shutdown? It's some media's role. Uh, When I was a bureau chief for Cox Newspapers and we had uh, 20 newspapers across the country we served, the largest being the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So we had a deep interest in Newt Gingrich from Atlanta. Our role clearly was not to assign blame, not at all. I I would – you know, I can remember talking about the need to be even-handed in this. Uh, 
Our job was to inform. So it, it sort of depends on the media and the role. So subsequent to my time at uh, Cox, I became the ombudsman for the Washington right. Post. Uh, I suspect that would be a topic I would be writing about. And I, I believe the Post newsroom would be instructed um, in most of their mainstream reporting not to be assigning blame unless there were people who write news analysis and are expected to do that. So part of it is the transparency of clearly labeling what you do. But the newsmakers manipulate the situation. The Republicans mm-hmm. called it the Schumer shutdown. The Democrats called it the Trump shutdown. Uh, while it was going on, everybody was trying to blame the other. President Trump even had a voicemail on the White House uh, saying, we can't serve you because it's a democratic mm-hmm. shutdown. Uh, so doesn't that sort of play in that, hey, the media's got to cover this because mm-hmm. we're doing this? I think the question is how you cover it. So if I was assigning coverage based on the parameters that you just outlined, uh, my story would be to call it for what it is, that they are – Uh, do a story on how both sides are trying to manipulate through language or whatever. Uh, Also be honest about – so when the Republicans basically said uh, you've decimated the military, uh, the truth was the military was not really affected by this. The role of the media then should be to point that out. Um, So I I think media often have to be careful not to take the bait on this and, and to be very careful about buying into the language of Trump shutdown, Schumer shutdown, things like that. I want to ask a specific question about the power of the president and especially the power of this president in these kinds of situations in having an impact on the media. President Trump talked yesterday specifically about the Democrats caving, caving in on the shutdown. He, that was his term of choice. I counted this morning 10 digital headlines from 10 different reputable news organizations. Using that in the headline, did the Democrats cave? Mm-hmm. So the word was dictated by the president. And the media outlets, whether it was laziness or they liked the word or they they took it because of the president, it seemed like he dictated the agenda mm-hmm. and dictated that, this time the language. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, fair? I don't know about that. Uh, he may have used the term. Uh, it wasn't used in quotes. In yeah, the okay. That, it, uh, it, I, uh, it, it was the media using yeah, the term. Yeah, I, I was about to say if, if they're quoting no, him, it has to be no. in quotes. Uh, but there, in terms of uh, – it depends on what those websites' role is. If their role is to provide analysis um, or perspective, I can see using that term because even progressives in the Democratic Party were saying their leaders caved. Now, you have to be – my broader concern about doing that is uh, even if you believe short-term that they, quote, caved, um, this story is going to play out, and I can envision a scenario where it could come out that caving, as it were, was a brilliant tactic. I could also see it going the other way. I mean, we, we are – this is, this is not the end of this story. The, the end of this story is going to be played out in weeks as to, A, whether uh, we – whether the 
majority leader in the Senate actually keeps his word and that there is a meaningful debate and a vote on the DACA dreamers. And then there are other components to this story that could change it one way or the other. One is uh, there's no guarantee the House will go along with whatever the Senate passes. And beyond that, even if they did, there's no guarantee that the president will sign it. I think what we what we have seen in this case, and I'm really quoting many mm-hmm. Republicans now saying that they have a, uh, a president, they serve a president of their own party that is often uh, intemperate and unpredictable on this issue. So my point is caving has to be put, if that's what people want to say, it has to be put in a short-term political context, but it has to be clear this is not the end of this story. We don't know how this will be viewed even a year from now or five years from now. It may be that caving was tactically a, uh, a good thing. We just don't know. And, th- and we have to be careful about predicting outcomes. We're, not, we're actually not very good at that. <laughs> Images are uh, often manipulated. Uh, we saw a picture of the president in uh, one of his uh, caps – uh, baseball caps uh, sitting at a desk uh, uh, supposedly on the mm-hmm. phone with an absolutely clear desk uh, obviously put out by the White House to show that he was mm-hmm. active but uh, the real reports show that they wanted to keep him contained and out of this so he didn't say something that would tip it uh, one way or the other. Would you have run that picture? I would have run it with a very clear uh, description that this was supplied by the White House and that there was no independent verification of how he spent his week. You know, these uh, these are White House photos. They're uh, – <laughs> uh, and even uh, Ohio University grad Pete – or uh, alumnus Pete Souza. Yeah. Uh, you know, they – when Pete took millions of images of, of President Obama and I think was – He's probably regarded as the greatest White House photographer. Nonetheless, he's working for the White House. They're not going to put out images that are damaging. This, when I see photos like that, I think back when I first went to Congress and there was a, there was a member of Congress uh, from, I think, the 4th Congressional District at the time of Ohio named Tennyson Geyer, a very popular yes, guy. Right. His office put out a, um, a photo, a stock photo of him uh, working at his desk. And with a telephone there, and as you look closely at it, the telephone cord was not attached to the telephone. <laughs> and this, this is where these things can go wrong and come back to bite you. <laughs> so they're pretty careful what they put out. Well, the, the president was obviously silent during this period. We'll see uh, how long that lasts. Uh, one more thing on media coverage, and, and this is transcends the, the shutdown. Uh, we've, you and I have talked uh, that this is the first presidency where the president has chosen to communicate directly with the American people or his base, depending on how one interprets it, through Twitter and other forms of, of social me- media. Millions of followers. Uh, gets immediate response from mainstream media. He tweets something, and within the hour, there's a story about it, if it's at all controversial. Uh, does that change the playing field for for journalists? Does that change the way you might approach covering the White House? 
Yes, I think it does. And, and here's one of the anomalies of this presidency. Uh, those of us who have been involved in uh, fights for freedom of information and transparency, uh, I think correctly, still argue that uh, this is an administration that is cracking down on the flow of information from agencies and all that. But you have to be careful because this is also a president that in many ways is more transparent than than any president I can remember. Some would argue too transparent. And I, I'd say some of his aides would argue too transparent. He, he gets up in the morning, he has a thought, and bam, it's out there to his you know, 70 million social media uh, consumers. So in that sense, he is very transparent, and in many ways, he is more accessible to the press than uh, other leaders. Count the number of times that on a whim often uh, without the knowledge uh, or uh, sort of sanctioning of his press handlers, he will call up a reporter and say, come over, I want to talk to you. And he'll go on and on and on and on and on. So it's, it's an odd type of thing. In many ways, we know what's going on in the president's mind in ways that we didn't with other presidents. Now, on balance, I think what mitigates against that, and I've given speeches about this, is that um, – Every president that I know of in American history is capable of colossal lying. I mean, let's go back to the U-2 incident <laughs> with uh, Eisenhower. Eisenhower going on TV saying uh, these claims by the Soviets that there's a spy plane. I don't know what they're talking about. Well, that lasted for a couple of days until they produced the pilot. And, <laughs> and then, pictures. Yeah, or the Vietnam War, the Gulf, right. Gulf of Tonkin incident. We know that there were – lies about that, weapons of mass destruction and all that. What is different about this president is that um, he has uh, – there are I – don't, I don't know that you would call them lies. They are fabrications. They are fantasies. They are, they are obvious falsehoods that are uttered by him with, uh, in real time, demonstrably untrue. And he does it over and over again. So there is – for all the transparency we have with him, there comes along with this a lot of terrible, bad, demonstrably untrue information. So I the, heard a number 2,200 documented yes. lies within a year. And it's, the first um, year. And I'm not, I'm not taking a political position on no, this. This no. is just simply the way it is. So one of the battles going on in this country right now is over truth and credibility. But again, looking at media coverage and, and – you looking inward to to the media between his lying and his tweets of whatever's on his mind at the moment doesn't that direct the media or misdirect or redirect the media to to follow rabbits down rabbit holes and 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 go after things that are absolutely totally meaningless perhaps yes uh, that's that's a really good point. Uh, you can't not report this. When, when the president of the United States, leader of the free world, tweets something that is either false or just way out there, just a rocket man. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, exactly. You cannot avoid that because we, we have to report what's on his mind and all that. Context, however, is important. And uh, I put this in the category of being careful not to take the bait every time he, he does it. One thing I, I personally believe about Trump is he's very good at misdirection when he's in trouble or when he wants the headline to focus on something else. 
So if we are having, I'm making this up, but if we're having an enormous uh, crisis over whether North Korea is about to launch another missile that is coming our way, and he tweets about immigration, I think it's, uh, you know, it's important that we keep our eye on the ball, which is uh, let's weigh these, uh, potential nuclear holocaust or the debate, as legitimate as it is, over immigration. Well, I think we would all agree that the, the threat of an incoming missile is different, so you have, to, you have to keep it in context. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, Programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. How would you rate media coverage of this president in his first year in office? How, how would you grade it overall? In terms of pure reporting and digging out what's going on in the White House, I would say borderline magnificent. Uh, really? Yeah. The, co- the competition uh, to find out what's really going on in that White House has made reporters – uh, very aggressive, and um, and by and large, despite some big mistakes, very careful. How many times in the past have you seen a story in previous administration, and I've seen this with the Washington Post, where they have a revelation about something going on in the White House, and they say, based on 19 interviews with people with direct knowledge, that's that's pretty amazing. So in that sense, uh, my type of reporting, and I'm not into morning Joe pontificating and all that, but pure right. reporting, I would say very, very good. Now, where I think we are continually um, not doing our jobs is we are not focusing on what's going on in the interior of the country. I often say when I talk about journalism, the state of journalism. This is not an original thought of mine. We're doing fine on the coasts, all right? But the problem with American journalism right now, the challenge is the gutting of newsrooms, news staffs, of legitimate good news organizations in the interior of the country. So why does that matter? Well, it matters locally if you live here, but it also matters because historically the flow of information about what people are thinking has gone from these feeder papers like the Des Moines Register or Columbus Dispatch, has gone up to the political analyst, to the ecosystem in Washington and gets reflected and very often it would cause them to send people out to that. that. That has broken down. So I still feel as a reader, I live in Washington, I come to Athens regularly, but I, when I read in Washington, I feel I don't really know what's going on in Ohio. Uh, And this also is reflected um, in Washington. When I came to Washington as a reporter 
1976 for one of the two Dayton papers, I think the Washington Press Corps for Ohio outlets was at something like 12 or 14. I think it's maybe four or five today. Well, that means an awful lot is not being covered in the bureaucracy about decisions on highway funding, education funding, all those things. In Congress, in the regulatory system. Absolutely. In the bureaus, in the – all of that. So the breakdown is that one of our roles is to provide credible, deep, comprehensive coverage that encourages or gives a a firm foundation for civic debate. And when you don't have that breadth of of knowledge coming to readers in whatever form – then it breaks down. I think this would be a fair statement that uh, the president and uh, the cadre of people close to him and around him have made some statements over the first year that I personally find threatening to First Amendment. Um, As as a, a journalist and a journalism critic and an ethicist, do you worry about that, or or is it just hyperbole? And, and no, it's not hyperbole. I uh, I worry about it every day, as I think every uh, every journalist does. Uh, as you know, I'm a senior advisor to a group called right. the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is a magnificent New York-based group that historically has tried to help journalists in danger in repressive regimes around the country. People who, because they have the slightest criticism of their government, get jailed or in some cases executed, whatever. We have been able to trace over the last year an increase in jailings with the charge by the people in charge making the the accusations or prosecutions referring to fake news, all right? Uh, That is the tone of the president. emboldens repressive leaders like Erdogan in Turkey to say, well, I'm going to do this and don't criticize me because look at your own president. When the president uh, whips up crowds to vilify journalists, uh, I I worry constantly that at some point it's going to get out of hand and there, it's going to be open season to start shooting journalists. Uh, On one of our previous podcasts, I think Mm -hmm. I I mentioned that a lot of people don't realize that during the last election cycle, major news organizations, NPR, AP, Washington Post, New York Times, became so concerned about threats to their journalists that they put people on the campaign trail through uh, essentially war zone reporting uh, training for how to protect yourself in situations like that. That's how serious it is. Individual reporters still get get serious death threats that get investigated by the FBI. Um, some of that always has happened, but it has exploded. And I, I lay a lot of the blame at Donald Trump for basically vilifying the press and calling them enemies of the people. And whipping up his base. Whipping uh, up his base. To, and, to uh, uh, parrot that. Yeah. You know, it, 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 one thing I think we all have to recognize is that it's it's the journalist's job to ask the critical questions. And I would argue that it's one of the most patriotic things citizens can do to question your government. That's how we become a better, smarter, less corrupt government. Now, some forms of media have, have taken sort of this as a challenge and I think stepped up their game reporting-wise. But it has to be intimidating 
to mm-hmm. to many journalists who don't have the backing of an NBC or a Washington Post. You know that that mid level journalist whose papers may not back them mm-hmm. on on something, they pull back just a little bit. Don't don't don't. I don't know that that's true. I, it may be true. Uh, I, I'm sure there are some cases of that. Uh, Good reporters, uh, when they are confronted with this, double down. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and I think it's a challenge. I mean, it, it always impressed me, having just talked about the threats to journalists, that when often the public sees a taunting by a group's taunting journalists at a public rally or something like that, I can just tell you from experience, it, when I was doing that, uh, it had no impact. I, I just want to do my job. Um, so I don't think that's uh, causing a big challenge. I think the bigger challenge is that the fake news label, coupled with uh, an understandable confusion in the public about what is a real journalist or what do they do in their jobs, makes it difficult for journalists to get average people to talk to them. I'll give you a, a very real example. We had a, a, um, an Ohio University student uh, my wife and I uh, had this woman living in our uh, house in Washington when she was an intern for the Washington Post. She was assigned to do a story in Twinsburg, Ohio. For anyone listening from Twinsburg, they have a very clever uh, marketing thing for their town. They started an annual festival years ago where twins come. And it's become very popular. And, uh, and scientists come and researchers to study twins and all that. But it's sort of a festive event. So the Washington Post sent this Ohio University intern out to cover this. And the intern came back and said she was surprised how often she would walk up to just average people, twins, and say, I'm from the Washington Post. I'd like to interview you about your experiences being a twin. And people would say, uh, well, you're, you're fake news. I I can't talk to you. Now, on an innocuous story like that. On an innocuous like story like that. Now, these are people who clearly, I'm almost assuredly, have never on a regular basis read the Washington Post and know the, the care that goes into reporting in the news section of that. But that's the perception. And so when you get to that point, uh, that's, that's really um, – uh, it's a real challenge to institutions. And, and I think we have to also recognize when we talk about institutions, this is happening in all institutions. This yeah. is a troubling thing in the country when you try to do to raise questions about institutions like the FBI, the Justice Department, the courts, the press, and all that. Uh, in the end, criticism is fine, but it's, um, it, it can go overboard and it can really destabilize society. One thing, and perhaps it's the lawyer in me that uh, in the last day I want to talk about is, is this um, sort of raising the specter of changing our libel laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, our libel laws have evolved over since the formation of the country, and and uh, most people are pretty happy with them. Uh, they, they seem to be working uh, pretty well, that uh, public figures uh, have a higher standard of proof uh, mm-hmm. to show that they've been libeled than Joe or Sally a- average citizen. And, mm-hmm. but, but most of them aren't statutes. Most of them have evolved through common law. But it's this mantra from the president that uh, it goes with fake news. Fake news, therefore, 
it has to be libelous against me, uh, he would say, and, and against uh, others. Uh, that bothers me a lot. Yeah, I think it should. Uh, I was amused when he tweeted uh, that he wanted again to revisit the libel laws, and he said, how can people get away with just saying anything that they want? <laughs> uh, well, of course, in his mind and many politicians' mind, uh, it's fake news if it's critical of you, all right? right. Uh, but my real first reaction was we have laws that protect people if someone, uh, even a public official, if you knowingly uh, write or speak a falsehood with uh, knowing that it is wrong and with malice, the libel laws do provide an avenue for you to go after the news organization, and some people have. It's a, it's a high bar, as it should be. So when I heard that tweet, I thought, uh, agree with you. Uh, we should uh, keep the libel laws we have. It's exactly what you say you want. They already exist. The greater threat, I think, is over First Amendment. And um, we, we want to make sure in this country that we protect the First Amendment uh, in all of its ramifications, not just press, freedom of religion, speech, assembly, right to petition to your government. I find uh, a it's worrisome um, how little people understand the First Amendment and the fragility of the First Amendment. You know, if, if you go back 100 years, uh, it's evolved. It's evolved to this point where, where we feel very free to express ourselves, to protest in a peaceful way. But that can be lost. Well, when you look at it, it we have limitations on speech. Mm -hmm. We have limitations against hate speech. We have limitations of speech that incites immediate uh, lawless action. So, so we have evolved some limitations. Mm -hmm. The First Amendment is not absolute. We have done that. If somebody does say something untrue, we've evolved libel laws that allow people to uh, redress those grievances, usually by a cash award, money damages, mm -hmm. to, to make them whole again. We have some areas that the law has said, no, we're not going to do that. That's basically in prior restraint. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to prohibit somebody from saying something. They can say it. They may have to pay a consequence, but we're not going to prohibit them mm -hmm. from doing that. This all gets mashed together in, in this administration. We have First Amendment limitations. We have talks about changing the libel laws. And then let's go to court and keep that book from being mm -hmm. published. And, and every, every law-based person I know laughed their butts off at, at that because it wasn't going to happen. But all of these things get conflated in this sort of mixing pot mm -hmm. of limitations. I absolutely agree. So let's think about this. What's good for society? If, if I could wave a magic wand, I would say in our education system, starting at a very low level, we need to constantly be talking about the importance of this so that people understand it. You know, there was a famous survey that goes back about 10 or 12 years ago, I think by the Knight Foundation, that found that more high school students could name, uh, students could name the major characters of the Simpsons than they could the five freedoms of the First Amendment. That's really quite scary to me. To me, a lot of the uh, 
the discussion uh, needs to center around allowing other voices to be heard. Now, if you go back a couple years ago, Roger Ailes, who at one point right. was with o- OUB, a very controversial figure with Fox News, he came back to Ohio University. You did a very good interview with him that evening. I think I was asked to do a public event. You were. It was surprising to me uh, the number of people that I heard from before and after that said uh, the university was wrong to allow him to speak because in their minds he was ultra-conservative, he had vile views on this and that. And I really thought to myself, really? In a university setting, we should not hear someone that has an opposing view? That's really? happening more and more. It's happening more and more. And so uh, in my own teaching in an ethics class, I often try to engage students in the question of where would you limit speech? Would you, uh, if, if a person who is a known uh, sexist comes to town, would you say, no, we shouldn't allow him in this town? We shouldn't allow him to get up on, uh, on a platform and speak? My view is yes, let him get up and spout ridiculous things and he will be seen for, for who he is. The, the issue really is when you limit any speech, you endanger all speech. That's what it comes down to. Well, we're out of time. Andy, it's always a pleasure uh, to, to talk with you, Likewise. especially on, on media issues, and uh, I'm sure we'll do it again real soon. Good. Thank Thanks. you. Today, we've been talking with veteran award-winning journalist Andrew Alexander about media and the government shutdown and media coverage of Donald Trump's first year as president. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, at Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. You can do that at Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. 